This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Detection Scale podcast. My name is Jack Naglieri, and today I'm here with Joe Uchel, who is a senior reporter at SC Magazine, a leading publication for cybersecurity. Prior to SC Weekly, Joe is a cybersecurity reporter at outlets like Axios and The Hill. And to me, I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation just because cybersecurity reporting is really, really crucial for both practitioners, leaders, and the general public to understand recent breaches, malware trends, and best practices that can really just help us stay safer on the internet. So I'm really excited to talk to Joe today, and I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a non-security question, and then we'll talk through things like breaches and reporting and things like that. So tell me a little bit about how you start your days. Like, what's your morning routine? Usually my morning routine is going through a whole bunch of RSS feeds. It's sort of been the way I've done things since going back four or five years now. I think the feeds have changed over time, but the basic idea is the same, that there's a whole lot of cybersecurity that comes out of reports from smaller vendors, from larger vendors, things that are circulating on Reddit. Years and years ago, I designed a bot to aggregate Twitter accounts and try to find things that people were talking about that I still use today. It's not quite as useful as it used to be back uh, I think InfoSec Twitter has changed a little bit since 2016. But yeah, most of what I do in the morning is look for news stories. What about non-work related? It's weird because I work out of my apartment now because of the pandemic. So I sort of don't have a time when there isn't when it isn't work related anymore. Not having a unique place to go to do work sort of makes everything work. But when I'm not working. I end up doing a lot of weird temporary hobbies, you know, just jumping from one to another, going around things. Recently, I've been trying to learn about mechanical watches. Oh, that's a good thing to spend a lot of money on. And uh, it's a great hobby. It's fashionable. Like, watches are awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly the kind of hobby for somebody on a reporter's salary. So... (laughs) (laughs) I'm just starting out on it, but it's it's interesting because I'm um, super interesting. It's the one field where we have some, the cheapest thing is also the most technologically advanced thing in quartz watches. And somehow that's not the most valuable or most well-liked thing. People like the mechanical watches that they're more off in terms of t- the timing isn't as accurate. It takes longer to make. They cost more. And there's just something about the simple machine of working a, of a watch that people like. But you rarely see the less technologically advanced, more expensive solution win out. But I love the idea of using not an Apple watch for things. I think an <laughs> actual mechanical watch is a really nice disconnection from the world of being plugged in all the time. So 
it's funny because we're in tech and you know we're talking about your morning routine is like I like an RSS feeds, I like at Twitter. I try to like really stay up to date on everything and then talk about watches and it's full disconnection from that world. So it's really nice actually to take those breaks mentally. Yeah, it's nice. When I started covering cybersecurity, everything which we talked about was, you know, in five years, we might see your toaster be used as part of your um, DDoS attack, or like maybe there will be nation states or, uh, you know, things where we were still speculating on where the dangers were real and the vulnerabilities that people were discovering were real. But they weren't coming to fruition the way that they have over the past few years. So when I started out, the stakes didn't feel as high as they have over the past year or two. I think as there have been more and more real-world effects, there's been more and more consequence to what I've been covering and less less speculation. That's super interesting. So what time frame are you talking in right, right now? I started a little bit before Sony. So what was that, 2015? So 2015, and I think things started to turn around during 2016, which huh. was, you know, during that election. Because, I mean, if you looked at the way cybersecurity was being covered during the election, you get things like Ted Cruz being asked about attribution, which is not, you know, Robbie Mook, the campaign manager for the Hillary Clinton campaign, trying to describe why people thought that Russia had hacked the DNC. And we've at least moved to a place now where either security reporters or actual professionals will at least explain, try to be the ones explaining why technical things work that way. It's no longer at least the feeling that anybody, I don't want to say that it's easy, but that it's non-specialized. It's a really interesting idea to say that it's become more mainstream in the year as the real world effects have materialized. But as a practitioner, I can tell you before then, it was very much real. It just didn't get as much coverage for whatever reason. So what do you think contributed to more of those things coming to light? Was it just political or? I think that there's political. I'm always fascinated by what the thing is. I think that there was certainly the war game stuff in the 1980s. But in terms of the public beginning to understand the most severe consequence of breaches, was the DNC breach. And it's interesting because things that came before that were things like OPM and, you know, Target, things that affected a lot of people. But whatever made everyone pay attention to that specific issue was when it got involved in sort of the political sport and allowed people to participate in it by going through all of these leaked documents. When DDoS, I think people started becoming more aware of that I don't even think it might was the video game stuff. I think it was when uh, Dime was hit, people started to be aware of it because somebody took down Twitter and Netflix for an hour. I'm like, that's a, mm. that's a line you can't cross without people noticing. And I think with ransomware, it was gas. I mean, it was Colonial Pipeline that made people start to realize mm. severe things. So I think based on that, you can tell the United States likes politics, entertainment, media, and gasoline, which sounds about right. That's definitely right. So of those over the years, what was your favorite story that you covered? It's strange. Like the kinds of things that I think are interesting at the time are different than the kinds of things that I think are interesting looking back on it. I think the story that most people associate with me was I was pretty heavily involved in the Guccifer 2.0 leaks. But I think my favorite thing that I was involved with was when a couple of states in the United States accused DHS of hacking them. 
which is kind of strange. It just was a very absurdist kind of thing. But I've always loved weird technical things, quantitative research. Sometimes you see vulnerabilities that are cool and completely impractical, and I love those. Like whenever anyone comes out with something that all of the old research about getting around air gaps, which no one would ever use, you know, things like the fan working at different rates or, you know, uh, those weird kinds of things, I think were always the most fascinating of the technical kinds of things. There are any uh, untold stories that you can share? No, I mean, I think for the most part, I've tried to be pretty open about it, about what's gone on from behind the scenes. I think the things that I don't end up talking about, I sort of transitioned it to Twitter for a while, but when news stories are actively incorrect, which was a bigger problem for a while about cybersecurity to oftentimes dangerous effect. I think that we were outraged by the same things you were outraged by in terms of coverage. You know, how to tell if your high school, if your kid is a hacker kinds mm. of stories. I don't know if you remember the North CEI report that Iran was attacking millions of times a day when it just turned out to be internet scanning. Like it was those kinds of things, I think are the things that don't come to the forefront for us, but they were the most corrosive, I think. Do you think that there's a certain responsibility that you have in covering cybersecurity? I think that the responsibility that I have and that people who cover cybersecurity have is not to scare people unduly. And I think that while that hasn't been as big of a problem since there have been actual calamities attached to cybersecurity, a lot of the time, the way that crime has been covered or potential nation state threats get covered is always in this consistent apocalypse kind of mode. There's a lot of victim blaming. There's not a lot of understanding of risk management. I mean, obviously, the news media has never been great at nuance. But I think that there's a desire in the way that some people cover the news to make things frightening in order to make things clickable or whatever the pre-internet version of clickable was. And I think that it's more harmful than beneficial to try to fit, scare people into better hygiene. And even if that feels at the time like the most effective way to do things. Yeah, I think the shock value can make people pay attention, but may not necessarily inspire action, you know? I think that if you look at the success that uh, I and the Cavalry had, one of the things that Josh Corman points out is that they started to get industry buy-in, and that's the IoT device security group that has been really successful with automobiles and healthcare. They started to get industry buy-in when they stopped approaching it as anger and started trying to make it more of a collaborative effort. And you now see a lot of security people in the room for that kind of thing. You look at the, for most of the villages at DEF CON, there's industry support at this point. And that's not all from I Am The Cavalry, but that as there's been more collaboration and as there's been less of an aggressive bent, I think that things have actually improved based on that by just being more polite, which is probably a good lesson just in life. Empathy is key. <laughs> it is for a lot of things. From your perspective, what do you think? I mean, you, you obviously see a lot of coverage of varying quality of cybersecurity and what stands out to you. 
The things that stand out to me that I reference very often is the scale of attacks and the frequency of attacks. So the value for me is I can both educate my company, I can educate people who aren't as nuanced in security, or I can just use it as a data point when I'm trying to explain that, hey, this is a problem that is never going to go away. And in fact, it's only going to get worse over time because things are getting more connected. So it's just validation. And it allows us to also pick trends out where like crypto hacking, for example, the crypto companies getting popped and, and Bitcoin getting stolen and FTs and all these things getting hijacked. It's allowing us to pinpoint trends to where we as defenders can help in some form or fashion, right? We can go talk to those companies and be like, hey, we help people. We specialize in detection at scale. This is our thing. So we'd love to be able to help you in this practice. So these types of stories just help reveal the trends that we can as practitioners and as vendors help make better. And that's really my goal. The crypto hacking is interesting to me. When it came to a lot of the legacy technologies, the reason part of the problem with security was that just had never been part of the conversation before, you know, that people have been making electric transformers for decades and were just learning about the risk of cybersecurity. It seemed like some of the risk that there's a libertarian ethos to the way that cryptocurrency markets work that seems to be opposed to security governance. And it's interesting to see a scenario where something that's very technologically advanced was not built around reversibility and security. The fact that decentralization and privacy took priority over security for a new technology. I think that that's kind of fascinating because I don't think you would see another new technology get around that. Yeah, well, I think that privacy was one of the reasons why we built systems like cryptocurrencies, right? Like we wanted to be able to process financial transactions without yeah, that sort of clear attribution, but also not within the controls or confines of a single government. So security, in a lot of ways, is also limiting, right? And the whole idea of decentralization is to not limit. <laughs> so I can understand why security isn't it's at the forefront have, of most things. It's hard to have security without someone in charge, without somebody being able to flick a switch. And it's hard to have decentralized security, in my experience at least, and this is just as a reporter, I don't think most security was built to be completely removed from an overseer of some kind. And so it's not an easy problem. It's probably a feature and not a bug, but it's a strange feature and not, it's a strange trade-off. It's an understandable one, but it's a weird one, I think. It is. It's very weird. And it's very subjective. And it's different in every environment. And that's, I think, what makes security so difficult. You have different data, you have different services, there's a different environment, there's different norms. That's why security monitoring is challenging, because there isn't a silver bullet product that can find the breach. Because a breach looks different at, you know, I'll use two of my examples of companies I've worked at, right? A breach at a company like Yahoo, bigger monolithic tech company, and then maybe a company I did work at, let's name like a financial institution like Bank of America. Breaches in both of those companies are going to look completely different. And the techniques might be similar, but the underlying attacks are going to be very different. It just goes to the fact that us as vendors and practitioners, we have to always be very adaptive. And we have to try to take the common denominator that we do across the board and put it into like one effort, which are products that we build. 
That is one thing that I think that people like me have done a very bad job explaining is that security doesn't necessarily look the same everywhere. And you see that come up when people argue for things like online voting, where the argument tends to be, if you can bank online, why can't you vote online securely? Which is sort of like, if you can run safely on the street, why can't you run on the ocean? They're not similar scenarios. There aren't the models are completely different. And I don't think we're at a point yet where people understand that security is going to look different for two different banks, let alone a bank and a sports team or, you know, a website and a bodega. I think things are getting slightly better, though, in terms of people's ability to both understand the problems and just be aware that security is an important thing we need to really protect ourselves against actively. And that in covering these things like nation state hacking or malware or ransomware, it just brings that more to light. So I think overall, reporting is doing a good job of raising the awareness. And the, you know, the thing that actually always blows me away, Joe, I always tell people who ask me what I do, I say, I work in cybersecurity. And they're like, oh, wow, we need that. <laughs> and that's always 10 out of 10. That is always the response. They don't understand the nuance of what I do. Because security, you know, there's thousands of companies that all have a niche, but everyone's response is always, wow, that's super important. And that does say something about awareness. It's also one of the things that I kind of like about cybersecurity right now is the acceptance within the industry that it's a greater need than a competition at this point. I think that there may come a time when things are more competitive than tons of open sharing but I like the shared data approach, which is going on at this point, that it's sort of half academic and half business at any given moment. And I think that shared need is realized in things like open source. And there's so many projects where people are just putting code out there to help other teams just push ahead. And in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with Panther's background or my background, but I was a part of an open source project at Airbnb, which was along those same lines of we're going to open source this. Everyone can use it for free forever if they want. And they're going to get the benefits out of that without needing to go buy something. And there's a lot of benefits, but there's also a lot of cost to open source, which is kind of the downside. I mean, one of the things that's sort of come to fruition over the last year, the inequality of different projects, and both in terms of staffing and, I mean, I think people were aware that Colors.js was an option, but I don't think that people were expecting that to ever actually happen. But I think that we've started to see some of the limits to having very small projects with very important downstream effects. It's strange because there's such a broad difference between different projects that there's always this concern that when you talk about bad actors or things that don't go well, that you're sort of painting this gigantic thing with a very broad brush. And uh, I think that one of the interesting things over the past year has been some of the difficulties on the lower end, on the smaller end, and some of the intentional supply chain effects that have sort of come into play that paint a lot of things strange. Like the conversation that, that Log4j led that people we're worried about open source in general. It's both good that people, that, I mean, the many eyes theory is requires lots and lots of eyes, but it also 
I've heard conversations where people wondered whether or not that meant that they should move away from open source, which isn't the case. I mean, it's it's not that there weren't aren't going to be vulnerabilities in other products or other code bases. It's just that when you have something that's in everything, whatever it is, is going to be a problem, whether that's Windows or uh, a small snippet of logging software in the middle of, of every Java application. Well, we've seen this time and time again on Linux as well. Heartbleed and all the other variations of that, right? I was a practitioner actually when a lot of those things came out. So responding to those and, and patching those things right away was, uh, was a challenge and revealed the scale of problems like that to where people could really take advantage of these vulnerable systems and, and cause immense harm. That's like very widespread. So that stuff's always very scary. I want to ask, I want to shift gears slightly. So going kind of back to the beginning, like why did you decide to start covering cybersecurity? When I had started in covering cybersecurity, I don't think there were many people who came into it intentionally. I think a lot of people sort of fell into it either as they were covering computers or internet culture and then moved over to cybersecurity or came from the national security end. They were covering national security and then realized that this was an important thing. For me, I had been covering, for most of the aughts, I covered music and movies, of all things. After going to school for math, I was a computer camp counselor back in the day. But as the internet sort of removed the role of the dedicated music and movie reporter, I went back to grad school for journalism to try to get better at actual reporting. And this was a field that I had known something a little bit about. Not to the extent of somebody who was an actual practitioner, but at least enough to ask questions that weren't completely off base. And I think that's how many of these things start, is just uh, something that you're good enough at that you aren't starting in completely the wrong place. Did you see the importance of cybersecurity sort of looking forward? Did you have that hunch? Well, when I was at computer camp, it's weird to start things off that way, but uh, (laughs) a bunch of teenagers on a network you see all of whom are taking classes in network security. It was in Boston. So like the bookstore that we had taken the kids to at one point sold a book that came with a bunch of scripts. So like we had inadvertently created 200 script kiddies, all of whom were, you know, 13 year olds, you know, that's that sociopath age. So I mean, it was never hard to imagine what would happen on a broader scale when more important things were in play than just games of Half-Life. But it hadn't occurred to me that that would be where I would end up. But at the time, when I was doing more computer science, I was more interested in image processing originally. But it's always a critical field. And I think anytime you have experience on any end of a market, you have to appreciate securing that market. That if you do something of value, keeping that thing of value both running properly and exclusive has to be things that you appreciate. Right. It's the integrity. You want to keep the integrity very high because you care about the cause or you care about the longevity and the sustainability of that market. It's strange. Like having worked with musicians and criminals now, the criminals are much nicer. I've had much more cordial conversations with truly abhorrent people than I had with rock stars. I don't know what that means. That's fascinating. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, like, 
I can say that I feel like for a lot of people who are in crime, they are more detached from what they're doing. It's not always true, but I think that there's a detachment between somebody messing around on the network trying to make money and the fact that, you know, you're putting 2000 people out of work on the other end of it. But at the same time, for people who are getting their first taste of fame, there's there's a lot of vanity and it's a grueling job. One thing that people kind of sell short with music and acting and things like that is the amount of hours of the day that have to be devoted to doing that, you know, driving from venue to venue, talking to reporters, multiple reporters a day for half hour stints, being on set for 18 hours a day. You know, it's they're constantly on edge, whereas criminals just don't necessarily see the thing that they're doing. I'm not saying that the criminals are good, but they laugh at my jokes. So they're more present criminals, more present people than uh, <laughs> actors and musicians. That was the thing that I think was most surprising about Gucci for 2.0 for me was um, that for the people who were speaking to them, they were trying to be friendly. They're trying to detach it from consequence. Part of that is a PR strategy, but anyway. So to sort of wrap things up and establish some key takeaways here, the thing I want to ask you is, what do you see as like the future of cybersecurity? And I asked that as a question from, from a coverage perspective. So what trends are sort of happening that people should be paying attention to going forward? There was a time, if you remember a few years ago, when we were first talking about device security as a thing, the big push was to prevent people from, you know, misusing the device, you know, turning off the electrocardiogram or, you know, crashing a car. But the first huge event that really came out of that was Mirai. It was, you know, roping all of the machines together for a DDoS attack. I am confident that I have no idea what's coming. Over time, I think that there will be a shift back toward at least in the public's perception of the problem. I think that there's a lot of nation state right now because of the war in Ukraine as we record this. But obviously, we're going to have to shift back toward ransomware, which will continue to be a huge problem from a crime perspective. I think that there are going to be a number of international conversations that need to take place over norms and international cooperation in terms of fighting crime. But there's a lot of ingenuity that goes into this, and I find it hard to predict. A lot of the time when people put together or groups to try to discuss the future of cybersecurity, they, they talk about it in terms of being a moonshot. And that's one of the things that I've never really understood, because with the moonshot, you knew where the moon was going to be. Like, you knew what the thing you were aiming at was. Ransomware existed when I started you know, covering cybersecurity. I mean, back then, it was still credential theft and... I don't know I know what the future is going to be. We're just going to have to figure it out. Yeah, I'm just going to be horrifically surprised every year. Well, Joe, this has been great. I really enjoyed talking to you. And the last thing we could end with is how can people keep up with your writing and go a little bit deeper on some of the things that we've talked about here today? You can keep up with my writing at SC Media. That's scmagazine.com. Yeah, that's where I am. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time today. It's great chatting with you. And honestly, this was such a unique conversation. And uh, really looking forward to keeping up with you and, uh, and chatting again at some point. 
I hope you got something out of it. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.